0: Uh, My name is Steve, I am the lead pastor here, and we are working our way through the book of Ephesians. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking a lot about change, how we um, engage change in our lives that is real and lasting and transformative, that isn't just about rearranging the furniture, you know, moving the bad habits to a different corner, um, but is in fact about changing the nature of how we approach life so that we're not simply making the same exact resolutions every year to change the same exact things, knowing that we're ultimately going to fail. And, um, and so we've been engaging a lot about what it means to actually have the, the gospel engage our hearts. This morning, we're going to shift a little bit, not just talk about the how. We've been talking a lot about how we as believers in Christ engage that change. This morning, we're going to talk a little bit about why. We're going to talk about the ultimate purpose behind the change that actually leads us to know what to change, what things in our lives need to be engaged and changed. During Jesus' lifetime, um, he interacted with a lot of people. He challenged a lot of people, offended a lot of people. And as a result, um, toward the end of his ministry, the leaders were consistently seeking to trap him, to, to find some way to undermine his credibility, to undermine his following. He had all this momentum. They wanted to see if they could undercut it. At one critical place um, toward the end of his ministry, we find this in Matthew 22, a lawyer approaches Jesus. And I don't know about you, I don't think it was any different during Jesus' time than today, right? You get a a letter from a lawyer who isn't your friend, basically saying he needs to talk to you. That's not a good thing, right? I mean, generally, there's something going on there that's not going to be pleasant. The lawyer uh, basically like, you know, hey, Jesus, I have a question for you. And the question was very simple. The question was, what's the greatest commandment. It sounds pretty uh, simple, almost non-threatening. But the reality was it was a trap and um, it was designed to ultimately divide the followers. Um, During that period of time, the the Jewish leaders, the rabbis, kind of camped around specific parts of the law The ceremonial law was more important, or the moral law was more important, or or this part of the law was more important than that. And whatever answer he gave, I don't don't think it really mattered to the lawyer what answer Jesus gave. The brilliance behind this question was that no matter what answer he gave, he was going to offend some, um, even though he made others happy. It was going to help divide his following. It would be like if I stood up here and said, all right, next Sunday, what's more important to watch, the Super Bowl or Downton Abbey? right? I'm going to get very different responses, right? I mean, in the same household, there's probably going to be very different responses. I'm not going to give you my opinion. You need to figure that out on your own, okay? I'm not going to tell you what to do next Sunday. Um, but, but you get the idea. The idea is that he's asking a question about something that was hotly debated in, in culture at that time with the purpose of ultimately getting him to, to take sides. Um, and what was awesome is that, is that he blew him away. He gave him an answer that they had never heard he didn't, he didn't come, uh, they, were, they were asking a question that they perceived was on this plane, and, and he came with an answer that to them came out of left field. He said, you want to know what the greatest commandment is? It's love. It's love. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. He quoted Deuteronomy 6. They were very familiar with that. That was part of the Shema. They actually quoted that every single day. It was part of their daily mantra. And then he combined it with a verse that they had never combined it with before, a verse out of Leviticus 19 that said, also, love your neighbor like you love yourself. And then he said this, very profound. He said, on these two commandments depend the entire law and the prophets. In other words, if you don't have this right, nothing else matters. If you don't have these two things, love God, love your neighbor, it doesn't matter how many rules you keep. You're not on the right path. And if you have these two rules, if you get this, if you love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and that produces in you a profound love for your neighbor so that you come to love people like you love yourself, you don't need rules. You don't need guidelines. You don't need people hedging you in and, and controlling you because you'll be controlled by an internal locus, a place that ultimately drives you to honor God and honor others. It was profound. It blew him out of the way. In fact, it um, The text says that the lawyer was silenced. (laughs) I love that. Um, He had no words. He had no arguments. He had no counterattack. It had completely disarmed him. And it completely disarms us, to tell you the truth. So catch this, you guys, because what Jesus was saying was this. If what you're doing isn't motivated by love for God and love for others, it's meaningless. In your life... Anything you do that is not motivated by love for God and love for others is meaningless. And worse, it can actually be idolatrous. See, Christianity ultimately is not about rules. I say that a lot. And people, you know, we still have this perception that Christianity is about the do's and the don'ts, right? You've got to say these things and look this way and behave this way and do these things and don't do those things and don't, you know, it's the do's and don'ts. But, but Christianity isn't about the do's and don'ts. It's about your heart. Because when you get the heart right, the do's and don'ts follow, right? The behavior flows from the heart. So if the heart's not in the right place, it really doesn't matter how many limitations, how many rules, how many behavior modification things you put into place, because ultimately that doesn't change the heart. It rearranges the furniture of the behavior, right? God's not concerned with our behavior primarily. He's concerned with our heart primarily because that controls our behavior. And ultimately it's our heart that either worships God or doesn't. And here's the bottom line, you guys. If we love God, we will be satisfied with God. And if we are satisfied with God, we will not continually be seeking satisfaction from things that can't give it. That's kind of the heart of where we're going this morning. If we love God, we will be satisfied in God. And if we are satisfied in God, we will not continually be driven to find satisfaction outside of God. It changes the locus of our behavior from trying to find satisfaction, from trying to be filled, from working from a place where we are filled and we're ex- enjoying um, God and the creation that He has given to us. And in fact, I think that's the point of our first two verses here, when you look at the beginning of, of Ephesians 5. Now, as I was studying this this week, um, I saw something new in these two verses that I've never seen before. Um, I've, I've studied these verses before. I've taught them before. Um, and and honestly, saw something here this week that, that I've never seen. Take a look at the verses. It says, "Therefore, be imitators of God, as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God." Um, these verses tell us to do something that nowhere else in Scripture are we told to do. It's unique in all of Scripture. It tells us to be imitators of God. Now, now we're told. In Scripture, to be imitators of Christ. Um, We're told, Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, but nowhere else in Scripture does it say, imitate God. Um, That's kind of a weird command, to tell you the truth. (laughs) And as somebody who has to teach it, I have to wrestle with it. Because when you just read it over, you're like, oh, yeah, imitate God, okay, and you just kind of go on. But what does that mean? How do we imitate God? He's immaterial, we're material, He's infinite, we're finite. He's glorious. We're not, right? He is the source of all love, all beauty. He is the, the true center of the universe around which all things were created to revolve. We're not, even though we desperately want to be in our sinful hearts. How do we imitate God? Well, I think the, the, the passage obviously gives us some direction. The word love is, is mentioned three times. In these two verses we 're called beloved children, which of course is, a, is part of the clue, right uh, God, God now is our abba, our loving Father, and we are to um, walk in love for him or an awareness of his love for us, beloved children that 's part of our identity now we 're not outsiders trying to earn his favor. we are insiders celebrating the fact that, that God, the God of the universe, is our our abba right we 're in the family, and in fact we 're told that that Jesus acted in love for us. It it says that that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And so now we we, we see the family resemblance, this idea that Jesus, as a son of God, acted in love for God and love for us, right? We see him walking in love. And in the heart of it, of course, is the command itself that says, walk in love at the beginning of verse 2. Walk in love. But the question still remains, what does it mean to walk in love in a way that imitates God? I had always taken this in the past to to kind of walk away from this and just basically say, well, God loved us enough to give us his son, right? That whole John 3.16 thing. For God so loved the world, and by world he means me and you, that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So what it means to be an imitator of God is to have this self-giving love, this what we call agape love. That's the Greek word for it. It's a unique kind of love that that basically says, I will choose to love you. I will choose to act in your best interest, not because you deserve it or because you provoke it out of me, but because I choose to do it. And that is a biblical application. We can find plenty of verses that say that. The problem is that's not what this verse says. That's not what this verse says, you guys. Take a look. At at the end of verse 2, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us. And does it say God gave him No, it says that Christ gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. The focus in this verse isn't that God gave Christ. Christ gave himself in this verse. It's saying be an imitator of God, but the focus isn't on God's giving. The focus is on God loving. Christ gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice for sin. Those are those are phrases that draw us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system where the Israelites would gather and they would confess their sins and they would lay those sins on a sacrificial animal. And that sacrificial animal would bear the consequence of their rebellion and he would be killed and he would be offered up in a burnt offering. He would be burned. In this sense it was a very visual, very graphic image of how there was a judgment that came down and this This odor, this stench became a fragrant offering to God because it represented the fact that justice was being met. Jesus became that sacrifice for us. He gave himself that that our sins might be laid on him, right? He's so fully identified with us that even though he was not a sinner, he's so fully identified with our sin that when he was crushed, when he was crucified, He did it for us as our substitute, and and he became a fragrant offering to God. What is God doing here? Jesus is offering himself. What is God doing? God is loving Jesus, and God is being satisfied with Jesus. See, what God is doing is ultimately saying, I delight in my beloved Son, and I am satisfied in the work that he has done in the gospel. I am satisfied. There is nothing more I demand. There is nothing more I need. There is nothing more outside of Christ that must be offered to me. I am satisfied. So what does it mean for us to imitate God? I think very simply it means that we need to be satisfied in Christ. We need to love Christ in response to his love to us, and we need to be satisfied in him. Our hearts need to rest in him. As followers of Jesus, we should have our hearts filled with love in response to his demonstration of love. And our deepest heart's need is to be loved. And that deepest need should be satisfied in the person and the work of Christ. John Piper put it this way, He said, God is most fully glorified in us when we are most deeply satisfied in him. God is most fully glorified in us as image bearers, as those who have been made in his image and have been called to walk in obedience to him. He is most fully glorified in us, not when we behave right, not when we say the right things, not when we put on our Sunday best and show up for some gathering, but when we are most fully satisfied in him. Because when we are satisfied in Him, our heart is declaring to ourselves and to the universe that He is worthy. He is beautiful. He is fulfilling. He is the ultimate source of life. He is God. And I delight in Him. We should find in Him what is ultimately satisfying. And here's the deal, you guys, if we, are, if we are driven by that, if we are controlled by that kind of love that, that ultimately finds its satisfaction in Christ, we'll change in all the right ways. We won't have to discover, we won't have to do this inventory and say, how am I supposed to change my life? We will start changing our life in response to being satisfied in Christ because we will have the deepest appetite of our soul satisfied in him. And having that appetite satisfied, we will lose our appetite for all the things we're turning to that are meant to be substitutes. It will change the way we live because it will change us. Take a look at verses 3 through 6 as, as I think the passage continues to explore this idea. Pretty heavy verses, starting in verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with their empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the Son's of disobedience. Now, some of you are like, Steve, you keep telling me that Christianity isn't about do's and don'ts. <laughs> that passage sounds a lot like do's and don'ts. It sounds a lot like God is saying, Stop doing that stuff and start doing this stuff, or I'm really gonna get ticked at you. Right? That's kind of how it, when we first first blush as we go through this, right? And it kind of is a list of, of do's and don'ts. What he's saying is when our hearts are in the right place, we're going to, we're going to be gravitating towards some things and away from some things, right? But, but let's take a close look at what he's saying. He's saying, don't be those kind of people who are, who are um, characterized, filled with sexual immorality. Don't be those kind of people that are characterized by a continual, um, nonstop, unsatisfied, just driven lust for impurity. Don't be people who are driven by covetousness, which is a, a big biblical word that simply means greed or lust. It has both ideas in there. It's this idea that, that I just am driven for something I don't have, right? It's, it's the American dream. How much do you need? A little more, right? That's, that's being driven by covetousness. It's just never enough, right? It's never enough sex, it's, it's never enough attention, it's never enough flattery. It's never enough people telling me I look beautiful or or that I'm strong or I'm manly. It's never enough success. It's never enough affirmation. It's never enough I'm just driven, driven, driven for more and more and more. Why? Because the deepest need of my heart is not resting in satisfaction. It's being driven by dissatisfaction. I'm looking to all of these things to ultimately do for me what only God can do. I am driven by this covetousness, right? And what he's saying is, as a follower of Christ, you should not, your primary drive in life should not be covetousness. This need, continual need for more. Continual need for more affirmation from people, more success in the world, more attention from women, or, or, or more people telling me I'm lovely or beautiful, or more, whatever it is, this, this need for continual stimulation. You shouldn't be driven by your dissatisfaction. As a follower of Christ, you should find your ultimate satisfaction in God, in Christ, in his love for you. And then from that place of satisfaction, go out and enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Right? Don't use your words to distract. To, you know, don't be the clown. Right? That's kind of what he's saying. Don't be the clown. Some people are the clown, man. I mean, they're, just, they're always telling the dirty jokes. They're always making the, the, the inappropriate comments. Why? Because they love it when people laugh. It just makes them feel so good right? That's the, the, depends their identity, it's like this sense of, I'm the funny one. I'm the one on the outside. I'm always the cutting edge. I'm the, you know what I'm saying? It's, you know, instead, if your heart is filled with satisfaction about who God is and what he's done for you, if you are filled with love for God, a response to his love for you, you know, what's going to come to your lips most easily? Gratitude. You're not going to be about, hey, pay attention to me, pay attention to me. You're going to be about, ha, pay attention to him there is something so great. You know what I'm saying? It's a, it's a different use of our words. There is a do and a don't here, but the do here is very different than behavioral, moralistic expectations. Start doing these things and stop doing these things. It's about, it's about being satisfied. Right? Do delight in the right things. Don't delight in the wrong things. Train your heart, lead your heart, like God, imitate God. Lead your heart to delight in, in the love of Jesus for you, His work for you, His sacrifice and rising again for you. Let that speak to the deepest needs of your heart. Delight in that. And then you'll do the right things. Don't delight in the wrong things. Don't do delight in freedom. Don't delight in slavery. Now, in these verses, Paul shows us a side of God that we honestly often don't like to see. There's there's a piece of these verses that shows God honestly just kind of ticked. Wrathful is the word that's used, right? That's beyond just ticked. That that means um, I'm here to judge. And that's a side we don't like. And and it's going to provoke two responses, I think, and I want to speak to both of them. The first is there may be some people here that respond to that um, in a very negative way. Like, I don't like that kind of God. I've heard that a million times. I like the loving God. I don't like the judging God. I like the loving God, not the wrathful God. That's not the kind of God I want to follow. Well, the challenge, I mean, honestly, is this. If God exists and he is real, you don't get to choose what kind of God you get to follow. You know what I'm saying? Like, like. I know that we're a very tolerant culture and we really believe truth is relative for the most part, but if there really is a God outside of ourselves and He reveals Himself to us, we don't get to define Him. He defines Himself and He defines us. So what we need to do is figure out how do we get our head around the way He reveals Himself? What does it mean that God is wrathful and how do we reconcile that with the fact that that He reveals Himself as being a loving God? Well, even though the idea is hard, the reality is God does reveal the fact that, that he hates, that he gets angry, that there are things he hates, and there are things that provoke him to wrath, right? And this is going to be challenging. If you like to picture God as a doting grandfather in the sky who has a big bowl of candy, and when you die, you're simply going to get candy and go to a cloud and play on a harp, right? I mean, that's, that's the God I want to follow. This isn't that God. This God is not a doting grandfather in the sky. He is love, but he's also righteousness. He is the God of quiet comfort, but he is also the God of fire and smoke on top of the mountain, absolutely separate from sin and determined to destroy sin. He is in his holiness, holy and unapproachable to anyone who is not pure and holy, which is why the work of Jesus is such good news, because it makes us what we could never be. It covers us with the righteousness of Christ and allows us to once again enter the presence of a holy God. Our sin has been judged, not just forgiven, judged. It just wasn't judged in us. It was judged in the substitute in Christ. That's why the gospel is such good news, right? Our hearts are continually seeking to replace God. God is love, but he is also justice. And the stuff we do to replace God, the Bible calls idolatry. In fact, that's the word Paul uses in our passage. He says all this stuff that I'm talking about, it's idolatry. Right? You don't To be an idolater, you don't have to have like this thing carved and sitting on your mantle. Right? You don't have to go out and grab a piece of wood and carve it to look like some weird thing. An idol is something in your heart that you look to to be God for you, even though it's not God. To do for you what only God can do. You give it the glory of God, even though it is not God. You're continually attributing God's characteristics to it, and it simply can't deliver. And here's the deal, you guys. God hates God. Idols. He hates idols. Now, this isn't vanity and pride on his part, right? That's how we kind of perceive him. Like, oh, is, is he that insecure? He, he can't deal with an idol? That's not the issue. It's not that God is, is vain or insecure. It's that he is a God of truth. Idols are a misrepresentation of the reality of the universe, They not only defame God, but they rob the entire universe of its ability to be centered on God, the true source of life. Idols enslave and destroy. God frees. For him to tolerate idols would be an act of hatred toward us. He must be true to his nature. He must be true to all that is pure and right. Idols enslave in the name of freedom. God calls us to serve for ultimate deliverance. So idols are a a defiant affront to God. He is perfect and holy, the measure of all that is right and beautiful. And as judge, God will destroy these things. And just remember, as we consider the holiness of God, we must also take in the whole picture. Because this same God who has stated, I hate idols, (laughs) I will destroy all that is unjust is the same God who put on flesh, walked among us, and so fully identified himself with us that he became our sin and destroyed it in himself by bearing its wrath, taking our place. So before you get self-righteous about judging the idea that God is judge and that he's righteous, you need to realize that he has demonstrated to you a heart of love that's far beyond your idea of sentimental love. God is not nice all the time, but he is love all the time. And his love is way better than our sentimental idea of niceness. So we don't want to get self-righteous in our idea about God as judge, but we also don't want to get self-condemned. And that's the other place that we kind of go when we get to a passage like this. Some of you are followers of Christ, and when you read a passage like this, you get that God is judge, and you get that he is holy. But you read this, and all you hear is condemnation. All you hear is, I don't measure up. All you hear is, holy cow, I think that's describing me. And that verse says, I'm not going to be with God, right? And so what we hear in that is is rejection and condemnation. We get so overwhelmed with our failure, with our sin, that we assume, man, I must not be a believer. I must not be in the family of God. Now, here's here's the thing for you guys. I don't want to undercut this, and I don't want to take the teeth away from it. This is a very real warning. There are a lot of warnings in Scripture, and those warnings are real. And they should have a bite to them. They should wake us up and make us pay attention, right? But we need to remember that in the context of that warning is the broader message of the gospel. Paul has already stated in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are, we are saved from our sin. We are saved from judgment. We are saved from the penalty of our wrongdoing, by grace, as a free gift from God based on the work of Jesus. God acted out just justice on Jesus and extends us the benefit as an act of grace, and we receive it through faith, right? So we're saved by grace through faith, right? That, that is the clear testimony of Scripture. We're saved by faith, but true faith is a transforming faith. True faith will change us right? There are some people, honestly, who walk an aisle, say a prayer, have a religious experience, and it's for the purpose of kind of getting their free ticket to heaven, right? Their asbestos underwear, this idea that, that now that I've got this thing, man, I can just go live the way I've always wanted to live, and I can do it with my, my get-out-of-jail-free, right? The, the, verse is, the passage is very clear. Don't let anybody deceive you. That's not the way it works. True faith is transforming faith, because when you come to believe the gospel, when you come to see Christ for who he is and what he's done, it will start reshaping your desires. It will start undoing the way you live. Not because it focuses on your behavior, but because it changes your heart. You're going to start delighting in the love of God because you're going to, you're going to see in Christ what is satisfying. So here's the deal, you guys. Our walk in Christ doesn't determine our destination. Our faith in Christ does. Our walk in Christ doesn't determine our destination, but it does point to our destination. Real faith awakens within us an appetite for more of what we love. Lauren's a gardener. I'm not. Um, and uh, occasionally she plants these flowers in the yard. And I don't remember if this actually, I don't remember exactly where it was, but I, I remember that, that I was working and I could watch these flowers and they would open up in the morning and uh, you couldn't actually see it happen because it was too slow. If you stood there and stared at them, nothing would happen. But you can come back at different points in the day, and they actually moved throughout the day because they would actually turn to face the sun. So over the course of the day, these flowers would actually move. <laughs> I don't know how they do that. They're plants. But they just, you know, like they're, they're moving to face the sun. And um, to me, that is, that's a kind of a beautiful picture of what happens to us when we believe the gospel, all right? What what happens in us is that faith awakens in us an awareness of the warmth of the love of God, and we naturally turn to it. We want to bask in it. We want to enjoy it, and so we end up following in the same way you do when, when you fall in love with a person and, and you come to enjoy their presence, what do you do? You start following them, right? Not just on Twitter, but in real life, not stalker-like, but, but like, like you want to be with them. You pay attention to them. You, you are turning your attention, your brain, your, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's when, we, when we get the love of God, man, it, it turns us toward God. And so this verse, these passages, are, are, these verses are pointing us to a stark difference Between two very different ways of approaching life. One is the path of an idolater. And the path of the idolater is seeking everything that God gives outside of God, seeking all the benefits of relationship with God without the weight of relationship with God. I just want the good stuff. I don't want any of the weight of of having to love and be loved. And and, and, yeah, I mean, I'll say the prayers, I'll do the religious things, but I don't, you know, I'm going to, I'm, what I want is what I want. I'm going to, you know, that's the idolater. Their back is to God. And their path is away from God continually, right? The other is somebody who has turned toward God. Their faith has awakened in them a desire to be in God's presence, to love God and experience God's um, love in re- response. And, and they are progressively moving toward God. Their path toward God isn't what delivers them. Their path toward God is what shows us they've been delivered. It's simply a response to the fact that they are aware that they've been forgiven, and are loved. It changes the direction of their heart, which changes the direction of their behavior. So when you feel condemned, you guys, remember that, that your forgiveness, your deliverance isn't based on your walk. You're looking to the work of the gospel in your life um, instead of the work of Christ on your behalf. When you look at the work of Christ on your behalf, you see absolute promise of deliverance. That's where you need to look. That will progressively change your heart to want more of Christ, which will then deliver you in your behavior, right? That's what we've been talking about the last three weeks. I want to unpack that more. We spent a lot of time in that area. But we want to make sure we're looking at the right thing, right? As a believer in Christ, I can say, I am not what I one day will be, but I am, by God's grace, not what I once was. God is changing me. And it may be slow, and it may be painful, and I may be stumbling every step of the way, but God is the one doing it. And I am incredibly thankful that my security is not based on my performance for him. My security is based on his performance for me. So here's the bottom line, you guys. We will move into greater freedom as followers of Christ because we are discovering greater satisfaction in Christ. When you are satisfied in God, you'll be less driven to find satisfaction outside of God, right? Sex will become a good gift from God to be enjoyed in the the boundaries that he's laid out for it because as the giver of the gift, he... He knows how best that it should be enjoyed. He's not a cosmic joy killer. He gave us, he designed it. He wants us to have joy. He's just saying, this is the best way. This is how it glorifies me and brings you the greatest joy. When we're following God, we stop turning to the gift and saying to the gift, you must fulfill me. We turn to God and say, thank you for the gift. I want to glorify and honor you in it, right? So it changes the way we approach these things. It changes how we find satisfaction. It also changes who we find that satisfaction with. Take a look at verses 7 through 11. Starting in verse 7, it says, Therefore, do not become partners with them. This is referring to the sons of disobedience in the previous verse, of basically who we used to be as well before we became believers in Christ. Therefore, don't become partners with them. For at one time, you were darkness before you became to Christ. You walked in the darkness of your understanding, in the blindness of how to be fulfilled in life, how to glorify God, but now you're light the love of God has come into your heart and and turned on a light that allows you to see things for what they really are, right? And you're light in Him, in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Conduct your life in such a way that you're walking in the reality of this new truth, right? For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. That's what we do anytime we're in a loving relationship, isn't it? You fall in love, man. That's what you're, you, you want to discern. Husbands, you want to discern what is pleasing to your wife. Not always easy to figure out, <laughs> but you're trying to discern it, right? right? And, and wives, you're trying to discern what is pleasing to your husbands. Right? Sometimes that's really obvious. Uh, you, these guys are easier to figure out, right? But, but you're just trying to discern it, right? Kids, you're trying to discern what makes your parents happy, right? Wrong! I get that. Someday you will. Someday you will because that's a sign of maturity. Mature love seeks to make the one that we love happy, right? Kids have to grow into that. They don't start there. (laughs) They just start incredibly self-centered, right? But they'll grow into it because that's what what love does. So when it says try and discern what is pleasing to the Lord, what it's talking about is you love God. He loves you. You're being satisfied in Him. And as you walk, you're going to have an increased awareness and desire to do what's pleasing to the Lord. So take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, the key word in this passage was that word partner. Don't partner with what, what the passage calls the sons of disobedience. Now, this isn't saying that we shouldn't have friends who are unbelievers, that we should go, you know, move to Arkansas, build a compound, collect a bunch of guns, and, and you know, isolate ourselves completely from the rest of the world. Um, that is not what this is saying. It is not isolationism. It's not saying that we should cut ourselves off from the outside world, that we should have no contact with culture. That would completely run against the, the broader biblical command for us to be, in fact, culture makers. That's, that's the, the cultural mandate we find right there in the beginning of the Bible, right? I've entrusted you this garden, which is God giving us the gift of culture. Now go out and expand it. We're supposed to be engaged in culture. We're supposed to be working in the world. We're supposed to be developing relationships with people that aren't like us, right? So if you're a brand new believer, if you've just come to faith in Christ, hear this very clearly. Don't abandon all your previous friendships. Don't walk away from all of those relationships. Don't, don't, that's not what this verse is saying, right? You shouldn't walk away from the friendships that you have with those who don't believe the gospel, but you should be careful not to partner with them. That's a very different thing. Paul uses a different analogy in 1 Corinthians where he says that believers should not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now, that idea of yoking was a very powerful metaphor for um, Jesus' listeners, this time period, in agrarian society. We're not that society anymore. Most people have no idea what we're talking about when we talk about being unequally yoked. Back in the day, um, old school, you would go out and actually have to buy oxen to, um, you know, pull the plow and the plow would, you know, all that sort of stuff. And, and so, but when you bought oxen, it's my understanding that you would buy them as a team. You wouldn't just go out and buy one oxen at a time. Even if they were wonderful, healthy, great, you don't just go out and buy two oxen because they actually have to work together as a team. And if you put two oxen together that are, that are different strengths, that walk at different paces, you'll never plow a straight line. One of them will always be pulling on and influencing the other, and you will never be able to plow a straight line. When it says, don't be unequally yoked, what it's talking about is we need to be incredibly careful who we bind ourselves with in such a way that they influence our lives that their decisions become our decisions, that their pattern of life becomes our pattern of life. We are not to be partnered with those. Otherwise, we're going to have a vision for where we're supposed to go. God's going to be giving us a God-ordained, God-sized vision for our lives, and it's going to be continually derailed by the people that we have tied ourselves to because they don't have that. They're not believers. They don't see the world in the same way we do. We should, we should not... Defriend these folks, but we need to be careful who we partner with because these things tie us together so that one decision influences the other. Now, there's some obvious applications here. When he says, Don't be unequally yoked, clearly it's talking about sinful pa- patterns and behaviors. You know what I'm talking about? Like if you become a believer and, and you had this group of buddies and they were your drinking buddies, I mean, that's, that's the, the group that you went out and basically, you know, you just got hammered with. and and tried to to hook up with chicks and you got into fights and and all that sort of stuff, you don't want to yoke yourself with those guys anymore. doesn't mean you don't want to be friends with them anymore. But you can't walk with them in such a way that their decisions now continue to guide your decisions, right? Those are the kind of guys that, you know, invariably, if you're out with them in certain settings, you will become one of them. You have to right? Because you bond, so you need to be careful that you're not yoking yourselves together so that it's leading you back into the sin that God is calling you out of, right? Some of you are coming out of very promiscuous lifestyles. You've got a lot of friends with benefits, um, and some of those are are, um, dangerous, right? You can't yoke yourselves to those friends anymore. It doesn't mean that you have to completely unfriend them or defriend them or separate yourself from them, but you need to make sure that you're not binding yourself to them in such a way that they continually turn the course of your life back into sin, right? I had a group of friends that I hung out with in high school. I, I became a believer my freshman year in college, um, and when I came back, um, I had to figure out what it meant to be friends with them again, because uh, the pretty much the only thing we did together, I mean, this is going to sound really weird, but we stole hubcaps. That's what we did. Um... We loved stealing, we loved, and specifically Mercedes hubcaps. Um, And so we went all over San Diego, and we looked for Mercedes, and we would steal the hubcaps. And and we had this big field, and I don't know, we had hundreds of them out there. And, And the reason I think we got on it was because I realized that they fit perfectly on my Volkswagen van's rims, and so I had different sets, different color hubcaps on my car all the time. I was constantly switching out the hubcaps. And we used to like to watch people come out to their car and scream and rant when they realized someone stole it. I mean, it's just wicked, evil stuff, right? So I get back as a believer. I have to figure out what it means to be friends with these guys that's not yoking me to that behavior anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, like I-, I need to figure out. It's, it's hard. I'm gonna, it's a challenge. But you've got to figure out what it means to be friends with them. Not to, I'm not going to separate myself. I'm not gonna... But at the same time, I can't tie myself to you. Not like that. Not anymore. Why? Because God loves me and I love him. (laughs) Jesus has kind of changed the way I look at the world and I want to please him. I want to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. I I rejoice in his joy. I take pleasure in his love. I I have an Abba who loves me and that is my identity now. So as a result, I need to figure out how to navigate that. It's going to be challenging, but you don't want to yoke yourself to those who are going to lead you into sin. Now, this is going to obviously talk about other kinds of partnerships as well. You guys, if you're young and dating, um, I'm just going to be clear. The Scripture tells you that you need to be looking for believers, right? Ladies, I don't care how funny and cute and nice he is. If he's not a follower of Christ, that is an unequal yoke. And, And according to 1 Corinthians, I would go so far as to say that if you choose as a believer to marry that person, you're offending God. Because you're choosing that person's personality over glorifying God, the one who actually sent his son to die for you. You need to pray for that person, love that person, lead that person, but ultimately submit yourself to God, not your own emotional feelings. What's going to happen 20 years down the line, right? You're married to a guy who, who isn't a follower of Christ. That unequal yoke, man, it is going to pull. It is going to chafe. When it comes time to raise the kids, when it comes time, he's not going to be the God leader of the home because he doesn't believe that stuff. Right? He's not going to, he's not going to, it's going to create tension. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't move into partnership, business partnerships with unbelievers. I'm kind of against business partnerships as a whole, tell you the truth. Um, I think there are way, smart ways to do business partnerships, but, but pure partnerships, well, I don't need to get into that. But what I will say is this, we need to be incredibly careful how we move out financially. Sometimes you'll find somebody who has a bunch of capital or a bunch of experience or a bunch of skill that you don't have. And you're like, I want to partner with this guy. Right? What happens down the line when um, there's this incredible opportunity that's in front of the business, but it requires, um, we'll say, mild areas of ethical compromise? What happens then? And you're in an equal partnership. That partnership is going to chafe. You're not going to be able to cut a straight line. You're not going to be able to do what pleases the Lord. We have a higher obligation than making money. We have a higher obligation than seeking our own pleasure and happiness. Our highest obligation is to find our satisfaction in God and to glorify the God who gave himself up for us, right? We need to be incredibly careful about who our BFFs are, right? Our best friends, those who get to speak into our lives with advice, those who get to shape the direction of our thinking, right? Dr. Phil's a smart dude, and I can learn a lot from him but I'm not going to base my life pattern on his wisdom and advice. And I shouldn't do that with my good friends who are highly influenced as well. You know, unbelievers. I'm not saying that we're better than them. This is not a superiority thing. What I'm saying is that we think differently than them. We're called biblically to have a different source of motivation and a different goal for our behavior. So in wisdom, it only makes sense that we're going to seek to be influenced most deeply by those who also are pursuing the same thing. So we don't want to yoke our lives, partner ourselves in such a way that they direct our lives. Instead, we need to stay friends with them and try to point them to what we found. We need to actually be good friends to them. Take a look at the, uh, the last part of our passage. Take no part with them in the fruitful works of darkness. In other words, don't let them guide your life in such a way that they're pulling you off in a different direction, but instead expose them, which sounds harsh, but I'll explain it in a minute. For it is shameful even to speak speak of the things they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, go sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. See, what he's saying is is bring light in for blessing. All right, that first year I was a believer. Um, I was at this place called Emmaus Bible College. That's where I became a believer in Christ. So I came in as an unbeliever. I was not... Really friendly. Um, I was combative. I was arguing. I was. I was the skeptic. I was the. And I was in this tiny little school, about two hundred students, uh, that mostly came from homeschool backgrounds and solid Christian backgrounds. And, and they just. I was kind of a an oddball. And and, um, and so I was constantly arguing and insulting and all the rest of that stuff. Well, about two months in, God just broke my heart, and I became a believer in Christ. Um, And after I became a believer in Christ, I became an obnoxious follower of Christ, right? That same arrogant obnoxiousness kind of followed me into my new faith. And all of a sudden, I'm all fired up for Jesus. You know, that whole thing, like, holy cow, really this stuff is true? Like, this is a huge impact. And all of a sudden, my heart is just like on fire with, and I'm looking around going, what are you, why are you guys just sitting around? You know, isn't this exciting? Isn't this news revolutionary, right? And you guys just want to sit around and, and, and (laughs) there was, I, I was, I would go to the lunchroom and sit at the table. And at a small college, there's pretty much only one thing to talk about, and that's people, right? You end up just sitting around, just, and it becomes very cliquish, and people start talking about other people. And I'm sitting at this table, and, and everybody's just kind of talking. Did you see what she wore? Did you see what she said? Did you blah, 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 blah? And I'm sitting there, and I'm, like, getting sick of it. And, and so what I did was I just sat there, and I just, just kind of started saying gossip, like, over and over and over again, like, gossip, 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 gossip. gossip gossip, gossip, gossip. And the conversations keep on going, right? And then slowly they start actually hearing me. And they realize, hey, he's calling me out right now, right? And so this wave of condemnation comes over the table, and everyone gets really ticked at me, and pretty soon I'm eating all alone. That's what (laughs) happens, right? That's not what this verse is talking about. That was me self-righteously condemning people's sin right? That was me bringing in a light, like a spotlight. And I'm like, you have a flaw. Look, look, see it, right? That's not what this verse is talking about. It's not about like turning on this blinding light that makes people feel absolutely miserable about themselves. It's about pointing people to the light. It's about giving them the good news that there's something better than what they're pursuing. It's about being a good friend to people that are in paths of self-destruction. It's going back to your drinking buddies and explaining to them there's something better than getting drunk every weekend. There's something better than escaping reality. There's a better reality. It's going back to our friends that are on the hookup scene and saying to them, you know, man, there's something so much better than these shallow hookups, these degrading sexual experiences, This your bravado. Man, there's something so much better. There's a different kind of manhood. There's a different kind of masculinity that is so much more fulfilling, right? It's bringing light in to where there's darkness. I had a friend who was going through a divorce and and he was an unbeliever and he wasn't, he was asking questions about the faith and things like that, right? And his wife put him through the fire who was becoming his ex-wife, man. She just made all kinds of accusations against him. DFS came in and had to do all these investigations. There were long periods of time where he didn't even get to see his kids because she was lying about him and making horrible accusations against him. And during this period of time, man, it was really a strong temptation on his part just to grow bitter. He just was getting angry, and it made perfect sense, right? And so I'm coming alongside him as a friend, and and honestly, there's a part of me that has to say to him, you know what, you're right. This is unfair. This is not right. This is not cool. This is stupid, and she is behaving stupidly, right? But I'm not turning on a light if that's where I stop. I have to take it to the next step and say, look, dude, there's something better than your resentment, though. There's something better than than getting enslaved to your bitterness. If you get enslaved to your bitterness, it's ultimately going to rob you of your joy, and it'll even divide you from your kids. He'd be like, man, I know that. I know that. That's why I'm trying. I'm trying so hard not to become bitter. And a lot of us stop there, and there's temptation to do that because we want to avoid what we call the, the shame of Jesus. But we have to take the next step. And that's where I had to say, man, look, man, there's a better way. There's a better way. It's called the gospel. Jesus took your shame so you could be delivered. Do you realize that you treated Jesus the same way she's treating you? You misrepresented him. You abused him. You took from him what was not rightfully yours to take, and he loved you anyway, and he died in your place, and he rose again so that you could be forgiven. And if you believe that, he's going to give you the power to forgive her. If you believe that, that will undo your heart and release you to forgive her even though she is, she doesn't deserve it. Good news is that guy became a believer and today is one of the most joyful dudes I know. And it wasn't because of me, it was because of the gospel. But I'm telling you you guys, you want to be a good friend, you need to share the gospel with people. Well, what if my friend takes offense at me? What if they call me a Jesus freak? What if, they, what if they alienate me because of my faith? Well, let me ask you something. Do you love your friend enough to risk your friendship by speaking truth to them? If not, you're not really a friend. You're a self-serving person. You're using that friendship for how it makes you feel instead of loving your friend for their good. The verse is telling us, turn on the light, speak the truth, point them to what is better. Not to condemn them, but to invite them that there is something so much better, so much better. And if you really love them, you guys remember what Jesus said, greatest commandments, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors, you love yourself. When we are deeply, ultimately satisfied in God, it frees our hearts to love God and then act in love toward others. At the end of our passage, that very last verse, therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul kind of puts the bookends on this thing and, and, and calls us to wake up. Wake up. Wake up to the love of God. Wake up to what is ultimately satisfying. Wake up. Renew your experience of Christ's love for you. Recenter yourself on who God is and what he's done. Let the warmth of his love cover you and enliven you and change you and fill you. And imitate God. Be satisfied in Christ. Look at him and see. The ultimate fulfillment and satisfying force, and then share it with others. Fulfill the greatest commandment. Love God in response to His love for you. And then, as that love permeates you and changes you, love others.